Revelation chapter 16. Now in this chapter, we read the final accounting of the wrath of God. The last series of seven judgments, seven bowls, poured out, tipped over on a rebellious and unrepentant, blasphemous world. So far, we've talked about, we've looked at the boils on all who take the mark of the beast. Talked about the seas and the rivers of blood. Talked about the sun heating up to scorch with a fierce heat. We've looked at a tongue gnawing darkness that stretches from the throne of Antichrist and covers his entire kingdom. And, and that coverage, that's worldwide. That's, that's the entire earth with what I think is perhaps the exception of the region of Jordan because of what Daniel 11.34 tells us about Ammon and Moab and Edom being out of his reach and not being under the authority of Antichrist, which is intriguing to me. But after all this so far, and we're, we're five out of seven judgments in to this, this truly horrific time to be on planet Earth, verse 11 says, And they blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores, and they did not repent of their deeds. Blasphemy. Many of us were taught as kids that blasphemy was to take the Lord's name in vain. The OMG of texting today would be unheard of. His name was to be respected. So around my house, that was an absolute no-no. You did not do it. I remember being at Knott's Ferry Farm on the log ride. And I'm talking 10, 11, 12 years old. And my brother and I were in the back of the log and there were these, these guys in the front of the log and, and we headed up the hill and got inside and then all of a sudden that thing took off. And as soon as it took off, they just started, well, cursing the name of Jesus. I mean, they were laughing and being boisterous and everything else, but they were using Jesus in a way I had only at that point in my life heard God's name taken in vain. Now they were doing it with Jesus. And I remember it just, it was so upsetting. Ruined the ride for me. I mean, I couldn't enjoy it after that, you know, going down the flumes and all that. No fun. And to this day, the profanity, if you want to call it that, the the words that bother me the most are when someone takes God's name in vain, throws around God's name loosely, refers to God vainly, uh, or does the same with Jesus or Jesus Christ or Christ. When those come up in movies, I would honestly, I'd rather hear the F word. Not that I want to hear the F word. But I would rather hear some of what our culture says. Oh, that's the worst of the worst language. No, that not to me. Taking God's name in vain and cursing with the name of Jesus, that to me is, well, it's always been blasphemy. But you know what? Blasphemy is bigger than that. Blasphemeo is the word in the Greek. It means to speak evil of that which is good. It is to call God who is innately, intrinsically good. That's who He is. That defines his character and his nature. He is goodness. He is the definition of good. And to call God who is good evil is blasphemy. In Mark chapter 10 verse 17, a young man was setting out on a journey. Or Jesus was setting out on a journey. And a young man ran up to him and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said, Why do you call me good? No one is good. Except God alone. I love that word of Jesus. He was adeptly implying both the goodness of God and the godness of Jesus. Why do you call me good? 
underlying thought, I am good because I am God, but why are you calling me good? Do you realize who you're talking to? But then that phrase, no one is good but God alone. And so to demean or to speak evil of God or of Jesus and His Christ, that's blasphemy. To say God who is good is bad. To say God who is right is wrong. To take His very nature and and compare it with that of, oh, I don't know, Beelzebub. See, in another place, Mark chapter 3, verse 28, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, all sins shall be forgiven, the sons of men, and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. Why? Mark tells us because they were saying He has an unclean spirit. They were calling Jesus, who is wholly good, the devil. They were saying He was unclean. He who was most pure, they called unclean, blasphemy. He who was absolute good, they called evil, blasphemy. And that's a better definition, I think, than simply throwing around a name vainly, not thinking about what you're saying when you speak the name of God or the name of Jesus. Oh, that's bad enough. But to blaspheme a righteous God by calling Him unrighteous or a pure God by calling Him unclean or the God who is innately good, as I'm saying, by calling Him evil, that's blasphemy. And that's what's going on here. When it says they blasphemed the name of God, it wasn't just that they were just calling out His name vainly. No, they were saying He's evil, He's unrighteous, He's wrong, He's bad, He's no good. Blasphemy is the dying breath of a world without a conscience. A people whose, well, whose ability even to discern right from wrong, good from evil, truth from deception is done. It's, well, Paul said it's seared. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1, the Spirit explicitly says in latter times, some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons by means of the hypocrisy of liars seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron. And we're talking about those who already have been branded with the mark of the beast, but they've been branded with the mark because their own consciences have been branded, seared, unable to function. Right is wrong, good is bad. It's all completely upside down. But what's interesting to me is we already see it, don't we? Isn't that what our culture looks like so much of the time? That Paul wrote, and just listen to this, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. We spent a lot of time in this chapter in the Revelation because it parallels so much. But in verse 7, listen again, Paul says, For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. It's already going on. When did Paul write that? 2,000 years ago. And I submit to you that if the mystery of lawlessness was already at work then, how much further along are we now? And then he says, only he who now restrains will do so until he's taken out of the way. I believe that is the Holy Spirit working in and through the church. I think the being taken out of the way refers to the rapture of the church and the removal at that point of God's Spirit wholesale from the world. And then that lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. That is, the one whose coming is in accord with the activity of Satan. So he's talking about Antichrist with all power and signs and false wonders and with all the deception of wickedness for those who perish. Why? Because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. Truth. 
and the love of the truth. Brothers and sisters, listen, before we even get to another bowl tipped over and poured out, we must be about the development of and maintenance of the truth. A people who are focused on and who love the truth. The truth of God's word. Not your truth, not my truth, not someone else's truth. The truth. The absolute truth. It is truth that keeps us from blasphemy. It is knowing and being raised up in the truth that allows us to see things as they really are. Not as we wish they were or feel like they are. But the truth. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. And we've got to know the truth because the moral conscience of this world is being systematically seared. That's what we see happening. Brains are being branded unto blasphemy. Well, keep that in mind. We'll come back to that thought. But continuing on now with the next, the sixth bowl judgment, verse 12. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river, the Euphrates, and its water was dried up so that the way would be prepared for the kings from the east. Now, after the first five bold judgments, which are so devastating and destructive, this one seems like a little hiatus, you know. Oh, it's just drying up a river. Not a big deal. Oh, it's a big deal. Bowl number six is the road to Armageddon. Bowl number six actually will continue on through verse 16, and we'll take our time here and work through this. But the bowl that's poured out opens the way to Armageddon by the evaporation of the Euphrates River. Euphrates River. The name Euphrates means fruitfulness. The fruitful river. The good and abundant river is another way to define it. The Bible, more often than not, refers to the Euphrates River as the river. Just the river. The Euphrates is significant in Scripture. It's the boundary between east and west. Keep that in mind. It is the longest river in West Asia. It runs 1,740 miles from start to finish. It has an average depth of 30 feet. It spans at its widest at 1,200 feet across. And it has a discharge in terms of volume of 12,572 cubic feet a second. So it is a wide, fast-moving, deep river. It begins in the Armenian highlands of Turkey, in the extreme east of Turkey. It cuts down and divides Syria and then Iraq. It meets up with the Tigris River, and the two become one and pour then into the Persian Gulf, the Euphrates River. Euphrates has been called at least part of the cradle of civilization. You may recall Genesis chapter 2, verse 11 Four rivers. The first was called the Pishon, and it flows around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the name of the second river is Gihon, and it flows around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is Tigris. It flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. So the Euphrates has been running a long time, since the very beginning. So it is part of the create cradle of, of civilization. But the Euphrates is also, and we talked about this briefly on Sunday, it's the boundary of the promised land. The Euphrates River. Not the Jordan. The Euphrates. Genesis fifteen eighteen. On that day the Lord made a covenant with Abram saying, To your descendants I have given this land from the river of Egypt, that is the Nile, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates. And that's the boundary of Israel. That's the land that God promised to Abram. 
At the very beginning, the earliest of the promises of the promised land included everything from the Nile running across to the Euphrates. That gives us the Lord's intent for the West Bank of Israel. It is not the West Bank of the Jordan River. It is the West Bank of the Euphrates. And all the media and and politicians' bias about what the West Bank is and all of the hoopla about the West Bank, it's misguided and it's confused. Now, me teaching that here on a Wednesday night isn't going to change the politics of our world, but the truth is, the West Bank of God's focus is not the Jordan River. It goes a thousand miles further to the West Bank of the Euphrates. That's God's land. That's the land promised to Israel. Benjamin Netanyahu threw a political bombshell a couple of days before the election when he made the promise to begin to annex certain areas that are on the West Bank. Oh no! He, he, he's stealing land from the Palestinians and that was that's the political thought. But it's just land that's well inside God's boundaries for the promised land. But this future biblical boundary, and I do believe Israel will have the entire area. I believe that day is coming. I believe in the kingdom. We will see a region there that runs from the Nile to the Euphrates just as God promised. But that future biblical boundary of the promised land. And this river that that connects the cradle of civilization will itself become the road to Armageddon as it dries up. That fruitful Euphrates fully evaporating so that, as we read in verse 12, the way would be prepared for the kings from the east. Now, sit and listen just for a minute. Think about this with me. Who are the kings from the east? Many Bible teachers, and perhaps you're familiar with this, I know I am because I've taught it before. Many Bible teachers say, well, that's, that's a 200 million man army. It's going to come storming across the dried up Euphrates. A pan-Asian coalition will cross the river on their march to Armageddon. The kings of the east. An Asian coalition that would include China, Japan perhaps, North Korea, who knows, South Korea. A coalition of armies marching across and ultimately crossing the Euphrates River. And when you read it, the, the argument for that and the thinking for that is that it, well, it says kings from the east, and the word east there literally means rising sun. Kings from the rising sun. Well, that's got to be China, right? I mean, their flag. You've seen the flag of China. It's red, and it has a huge yellow star up in the corner, and then four other stars the circle it is supposed to be the different regions of China, and the main star is the People's Republic. You know, it's, it's, the, it's the main governing party. But that big yellow star, people say, the rising sun. What's the flag of Japan? Big white open area with a red dot in the middle, the rising sun. And so Japan and China and some of these Asian countries have have long been seen as countries of the rising sun. Kings from the east, kings from the rising sun. And people make that assumption. Here's the thing. If we stop and think biblically, that perspective uses a flawed exegesis. That is a flawed method of interpretation. Let me explain. A, it's out of order. 
Because what it does is it combines and confuses the sixth trumpet judgment, which is the army of 200 million riders. It confuses that with now the sixth bowl judgment of the Euphrates dried up. So that army is now crossing. It is what they try to put together. But if, if we're following the literal flow of Revelation, the sixth trumpet judgment already happened. So that army already marched on the world. We know what happens with that army. Along with four killer angels, they take out, they execute one-third of humanity. So they don't need the Euphrates to dry up to do their bidding, to do their evil work. And, and furthermore, not only does it get out of order, but if we say a 200 million man army is going to cross the dried up Euphrates, and we're speaking of the kings of the east in terms of these Asian nations coming across, understand, remember in Revelation 9, that the 200 million rider army is not human. It's demonic. Feel free on your own time to go back to Revelation 9 and look at it. How does it describe the riders? And how does it describe the horses on which they ride? It is a demonic army that is loosed at that time. It's not an Asian army. It's not a Chinese army. But it sounds good to say, yeah, but, but it's kings from the east, Rick. It's, it's from the east. Listen, biblically speaking, the east, the east in the Bible, from a, from a Judeo perspective... The East always speaks of Mesopotamia. So, well, Mesopotamia, Mesopotamia, by the way, means between the rivers, between the Euphrates and the Tigris, that's Mesopotamia. What sits right there? Ancient Assyria and Chaldea. Kings from the East, from a biblical perspective, would refer to ancient Assyria and Chaldea, the region between the rivers. And allow me just for a moment longer to geek out on geography here, but when the floodwaters receded and Noah's Ark sat atop that mountain, you remember what mountain that was on? Mount Ararat. Where is Mount Ararat? It's in Turkey. Okay, it's in the extreme eastern border or eastern area of Turkey, but it's in Turkey. Now, keep that in mind and listen to Genesis 11, verse 1. Now, the whole earth used the same language and the same words. And it came about as they journeyed east. That would be from Mount Ararat, from the first settlement after the flood. As they began to journey east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. Where's Shinar? Babylon. Shinar is Chaldea is Babylon. And that's where they built the Tower of Babel. Babylon, Babel, the same location. That's the east. That, according to Scripture, is the east. They went to the east and settled in the east in Babylon. What is the capital city of the Antichrist? Babylon. So what I believe is being truly talked about here, when the sixth angel pours out his bowl and the great river, the Euphrates, dries up, guess where Babylon sits? It sits on the eastern shore of the Euphrates. Suddenly, the Euphrates is dried up. Guess who now can come straight across and march to Armageddon? Antichrist. And the kings of the east, those who are allied with him, those who are part of his rule and his authority, all now can maneuver freely in and through Babylon and right on out to head to Megiddo. Keep your finger here and go over to Daniel chapter 11. Daniel 11. 
where Daniel describes this very thing. Daniel chapter 11, verse 40. The prophet writes, At the end time, the king of the south will collide with him. And the king of the north will storm against him. That's against Antichrist. So now, at this point, it's all coming apart. Antichrist's hope of world dominion and world rule is falling apart, and the nations of the world are beginning to come against him, fight against him. That's why he heads to Megiddo. For this massive world war, where everybody's fighting everybody else until Jesus comes, and when Jesus comes, they all turn their attack on him, and they're wiped out. But it's all coming down around Antichrist. At the end time, again, verse 40, the king of the south will collide with him. The king of the north will storm against him with chariots, with horsemen, and with many ships. And he will enter countries and overflow them and pass through. He's coming from Babylon. He's coming across. He's heading toward Megiddo, toward the promised land. And verse 41, he will enter the beautiful land. That's Israel. And many countries will fall, or many will fall, but these will be rescued out of his hand, Edom, Moab, and the foremost of the sons of Ammon. Again, they're out of his hand. He can't touch them. Remember we talked about why? Israel's there. Somewhere in Edom, Basra, Petra perhaps, hidden out and protected. But he will stretch out his hand against other countries, and the land of Egypt will not escape Verse 43, but he will gain control over the hidden treasures of gold and silver, over all the precious things of Egypt and Libyans and Ethiopians. So all of North Africa will follow at his heels. So they're coming alongside. But rumors from the east, not armies from the east, rumors, and the north will disturb him and he will go forth with great wrath to destroy and annihilate many. He will pitch the tents of his royal pavilion between the seas and the beautiful holy mountain that is between the Mediterranean Sea, the Dead Sea, the Red Sea, and the holy mountain, which is Jerusalem. He's going to pitch his tents where? In the location called Megiddo. Yet he will come to his end, and no one will help him. So Antichrist comes into Megiddo, sets up there, camps out there, is ready to fight there. And the call goes out from there now to all of Antichrist's allies to come meet up in Megiddo. Verse 13, I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet, three unclean spirits like frogs. Weird. This is just one of the stranger pictures in the Revelation. But what's happening is an invitation of the unholy trinity. The dragon, Antichrist, the false prophet. The counterfeit triforce, if you will. And they are spewing out now a message and messengers. And these are spirits of demons that are like frogs. This, by the way, is like the second plague. Remember the plague of Egypt. And I told you five of these bold judgments parallel five out of the ten plagues that happened against Egypt. Well, this is the second plague, the plague of the frogs. First the Nile was turned to blood and then the frogs come up out of the Nile. Well, you wouldn't want to swim around in blood either. So they come up and they begin to take over Egypt and it's the second plague. Well, now we see frogs in a similar fashion. Just three of them though. Coming out of the mouth of Antichrist, out of the mouth of the devil, out of the mouth of the false prophet. But note that he says very specifically, and I told you early on in this study, 
John would let you know when he's giving a synonym or a picture or a type. And this is one of those. These are spirits, demonic spirits, like frogs. They're not frogs. They're like frogs. And that being the case, there's a reason why John says these are like frogs. He's getting something across through the Jewish lens. Frogs are unclean. Loathsome frogs. These demons. They're unclean. They're impure. Remember what Jesus said about this? Matthew chapter 12, verse 43. He said, when the unclean spirit goes out of a man, it passes through waterless places seeking rest and does not find it. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I come or which I came. And when it comes, it finds it unoccupied, swept and put in order. Then it goes and takes along with it seven other spirits more wicked than itself. And they go in and they live there. And the last state of that man becomes worse than the first. That's the way it will be with this evil generation. Which tells us very clearly, it's not enough just to get rid of bad stuff in my life. It's not enough just to empty out sin in my life. i got to be filled up. Because if my house is empty and cleaned out, but it is not filled with the Spirit of the living God, there's room for the devil to come right back in. And he will come more powerfully than he did before. So as we give our lives to the Lord, as we walk with the Lord, we want to be filled with His Spirit. So that there's not room for any other spirits, any untoward spirits, any froggy, loathsome spirits. And that's what these demonic spirits are. They are unclean. The world worships unclean things. The world loves impurity. Just look at what's on cable TV. Look at what people are binge-watching. The world has a real taste for uncleanness. And these demons are a picture of that. What's interesting is the second plague, the plague of frogs, came upon Egypt. Egypt in the Hebrew Scriptures, you Bible students know, is a picture of the world. So what Egypt was getting in a plague of frogs, now the world is getting as these demonic frog-like demons are coming out. Same idea. You want unclean? Here comes the unclean. It's just going to speak the language. The Egyptians worshipped a frog-headed goddess. Who would want to kiss that? Who would think that was attractive? I mean, it's really bizarre. Take the head of a frog, stick it on a woman. There's this goddess of Egypt. And so when, when God was sending the plagues, He was, one by one, He was taking out all the gods of Egypt. You want to worship a froggy goddess? I'm going to send you frogs and show you who's really in control here. The frog-headed goddess of Egypt is a goddess of fertility. So God sent the second plague, and it was, I love, you know what you call a bunch of frogs? You know, you got like a flock of seagulls. You call it a colony or an army of frogs. So here comes this demon frog. Not only are these froggy demons loathsome, that is unclean, but they're loud. You know, frogs are loud. They're, they're loud creatures. They're noisy, especially in the dark, especially in the evening, and especially this time of year. You can hear them all over the place. Now, I kind of like the sound, to be honest. It's a peaceful sound. And God created frogs, you know, to be on the earth and to fill the ponds and the muck and the scum and to make their little noises. Down there croaking at the Gilmore's Pond, I hear them every night. We like to open the windows and there's just kind of that, that buzzing noise that the frogs make. 
The English theologian Henry Alford said, we can only explain the similitude of frogs to demons from the uncleanness and the pertinacious noise of the frogs. I like that word. Pertinacious. That is loud. Frogs are noisy creatures. Now, stop and think about this, because I don't know about you, but I think some people think that demons are more quiet creatures. You know, they're stealthy. They're secretive. They're in the shadows. You don't hear them much. They move about and they carry out the wicked schemes, but they do so surreptitiously. They're self-restrained. Not true. Not true. Demons are chaotic, clamoring, croaking beasts. They crave the world's attention through disorder and disruption. And ask yourself, in all the stories of Jesus casting out demons in the New Testament, how many times did you see a person who was demon-possessed who was quiet? They're never quiet. They're always shouting Jesus down. We know who you are, Holy One of God. You're the Son of the Most High. They're always just blurting out stuff. They can't keep their mouths shut. And that is the demonic realm. The demonic realm is not only unclean, it is noisy. The devil knows noise, deafening noise and clamor is destabilizing. It's upsetting. It's confusing. The more the noise, the more the buzz, better. Go into it. Well, don't do this, but if you were to go into a, 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 a rave club, it's loud. Sometimes be, I'll be watching a show and, and people will go into the club and it's so, and I just look at Sean and go, I don't get it. I don't understand clubbing. I don't get the idea. It just sounds horrible to me. I'm, you know, I'm in there it's sitting in bed with my slippers on. This is good. This is what, I, not that, you know. Noise and, and clamor. And that is a tool of the enemy. Which is why God says, cease striving and know that I am God. Be still. See, we hear God in the stillness. We, we, we hear His voice when we quiet down. And the noise, or the noise is a tool of the enemy. Daniel 7.25, speaking of Antichrist, says he will speak out against the Most High and wear down the saints of the Highest One. That's what the noise does. So we have these demon frogs who are loathsome, they're loud, and you know what else? They leap. You could say, have frog, will travel, because they go everywhere. Think back to the second plague in Egypt, Egypt uh, Exodus chapter 8, verse 3. The Nile, the Lord says, will swarm with frogs, which will come up and go into your house, and into your bedroom, and on your bed, and into your houses of your servants, and on your people. <laughs> Gross, but, and into your ovens. And your kneading bowls. Frog legs, anyone? Psalm 105, verse 30 describes it, says their land swarmed with frogs, even in the chambers of the kings. You throw back the covers to hop in bed at night, ribbit. I mean, they're everywhere. So are demons. So are demons. They are loathsome, they are loud, and they leap in the places of your life you don't even think they would ever go there. They go everywhere. They know how to get around. And that's part of the picture. These three demonic spirits like frogs, they are now moving throughout the earth. They're not limited. They can hop anywhere they want to go. They're loud. 
They're unclean. They're able to perform powerfully signs and wonders, which Jesus said they're going to, you know, the false prophets and false Christs will come and will perform signs and wonders even to mis- mislead the elect if they could. So they're going out with these signs and, and as they go, the world leaders... Verse 14, spirits of demons performing signs which go out to the kings of the whole world to gather them together for the war of the great day of God, the Almighty. They go out there and and the leaders of the world will not be able to resist their riveting manipulations. There's all kinds of deception going on here. The manipulation of world leaders and they will, the kingdoms of the world will fall in line and they will all head to Megiddo. For the final battle. Jesus casts out unclean spirits who are opposed to His will. Satan sends out unclean spirits to do His will. But note this. John gives us a piece of information here that I think is fascinating. That ultimately, it's not demons. It's not the dragon. It's not the Antichrist. And it is not the false prophet who gets everybody gathered at Megiddo. This is God's party. Notice what he says at the end of verse 14. They are gathered together for the war of the great day of God the Almighty. This is his day. This is his deal. Well, Antichrist thinks he's doing a great thing by gathering his forces for this massive battle. This is the day, the great day of, or the war of the great day of God. And Jesus immediately follows that thought with verse 15. Behold, I'm coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake keeps his clothes so that he will not walk about naked and men will not see his shame. Blessed is the one who's alert and the one who's pure. The one who is dressed and ready to go. And as we talked about on Sunday, even as the bold judgments pound the outskirts of the wilderness stronghold, the wilderness safe house of the faithful remnant of Israel, even as they're there, And I have no doubt, because they're Israeli, they'll have spies watching what's happening on the outside. Even as they watch and see this massive buildup of world armies there at Megiddo, Jesus speaks. He says, Behold, I'm coming like a thief. All that you're seeing going on here, guess what? I'm next. I'm coming like a thief. Be ready to go. You know who hears Him? It's those who are of the light. As we read, 1 Thessalonians 5.4, You brethren are not in darkness, that the day would overtake you like a thief. You are all sons of light and sons of day. We are not of night nor of darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us be alert and sober. And so really there are three people groups that are being talked to in Revelation 16.15. As Jesus says, I'm coming like a thief. He's talking to you and me right now to the church. As we study Revelation, we see this and go, oh, that's right, He is coming, isn't He? And He's coming on a world that does not expect Him to come. And the rapture will be a thieving event as the Lord steals away all of His. And this word is spoken, I believe, to those in the world at the time, perhaps not even in that wilderness stronghold, but tribulation saints, people who have come to faith in Jesus, perhaps who have survived to this point and they're seeing it all fall apart and they're thinking the end is near and I'm trying to be faithful but Lord I'm scared to death and they're reading this and they hear Him say, behold I'm coming like a thief. The armies of the nations of the world are all gathering, I'm coming. And then of course the third group is the faithful of Israel. 
who are there in the wilderness. And Jesus gets this message across. Man, be dressed, be ready. I am on the way. Verse 16. And they gather them together to the place which in Hebrew is called Har Megedon, which means literally Mount. Har means mount or hill country. Megiddo means rendezvous. Mount rendezvous. I I read a a sad little commentary this last week where they were saying, yeah, part of the problem with this whole Megiddo being there in Israel, and everybody knows it's in Israel, but people are saying, well, maybe it's not there. People trying to propose other locations because where's the mountain? It's called Mount Megiddo, Har Megiddo, the Mount of Megiddo. Well, two things. Number one, if you've been on Mount Megiddo, you know you're on a mountain in terms of a mountain in Israel. Like there are several mountains that surround this massive valley of Megiddo. There's Mount Carmel. There's Mount Megiddo. There's Mount Gilboa. All these mountains that, that surround it. And to stand on that place at the top of what we call Mount Megiddo, you can look out and see the vast valley of Megiddo. So there is a mountain there. But even if you say, well, it's not like Mount Rainier, whatever, okay. The word har in the Hebrew also means hill country. So if you don't want to call those mountains, call them hills. You are in the hill country of Megiddo. That is the place, Har Megiddo. Armageddon is not a meteorite hitting the earth. And Bruce Willis going off to save us. You know, Armageddon is not a, a horrific event or an act of terror. Har Megiddo is a place. In Israel, in the Jezreel Valley, same valley, the Jezreel Valley, lush, green, beautiful valley in Israel today. It's in that region called the Lower Galilee. And there, in Megiddo, the Jezreel Valley, many bloody rendezvous have taken place. And if you look back over history, those of you who love to study war, you study Megiddo. Judges chapter 4, Deborah led the sons of Naphtali and Zebulun in a rout of the army of Sisera, or Sissyface, whatever you want to call him. He ran away from the battle. He fled for his life because of the mighty Deborah. I love it. None of the men of Israel would stand up to him, but Deborah said, all right. You know what's interesting? And this says something about us taking godly roles and and accepting the place that God has for us, men and women. And note, whenever we talk about roles, they're roles. They're not issues of equality. We are all one in Christ Jesus, but we have been given different roles. That's biblical, folks. I know culture completely disagrees and would call me bigoted for that, but there are roles for men and there are roles for women. And we function best and we are most satisfied when we are in those roles. Well, here's Deborah, who is a judge of Israel, a deliverer, if you will. And Barak comes to her and says, Sisera and and his mean guys are all causing problems. Do something. She's like, you're the guy. Go fight. I don't know why. And she said, okay, I'll come with you. I'll come with you. Hold your hand. I'm adding a little bit here. Sorry, I don't know why it's doing this tonight. What's nice is the thought that while you're teaching, if you just don't move, it'll all be fine. So Deborah says, Barack, I'll come with you, but here's the deal. If I come to this battle with you, then the victor will be a woman. And not a man. 
well, it's okay with me. And so off they go. And they rout the, the men of Sisera. Sisera flees, hides out, finds the tent of a woman named Yael. Gets in there and he says, hide me, hide me here from them. And she says, okay, hide under this blanket. Lays down. She puts a, actually a skin over him and he's lying there. Because I'm thirsty. She gives him a little milk. And then Sisera ends up with a splitting headache. <laughs> If you know the story, she takes a tent peg and drives it through his skull into the ground. And Yael, the woman, gets the credit for the victory over Sisera. Well, that all happened in the valley of Megiddo. Judges chapter 7. Gideon led a crack squad of 300 dog lappers. The whole story, and we, we always talk about this when we're, when we're there at Gideon's Spring in Israel, but it, it's, it's an interesting story. Everyone wants to make something out of the guys that Gideon chooses. They, they were the ones who lapped like dogs, so they must be you know, alert and, and, and awesome. No, they weren't. I, I think Gideon ended up, of all his men, he ended up with 300 of the lamest possible men. And God whittles down the odds when Gideon goes out to fight the Midianites. When they finally engage in this epic overnight battle, the odds are 450 men of Gideon to one man of Israel. 450 to one. Of course, Israel wins. That's there in the valley of Megiddo. And Judges 15. Samson single-handedly wipes out the Philistines at Megiddo. 1 Samuel chapter 31, you can read the story of Saul and Jonathan who die fighting the Philistines on Mount Gilboa overlooking the Jezreel Valley, Megiddo. 1 Kings 18, Elijah defeats the 450 prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel, again, overlooking Megiddo, right above this valley. 2 Chronicles 35, in a great tragedy for Israel, The greatest king since David, Josiah, was killed by a stray arrow of the army of Pharaoh Necho in the valley of Megiddo. Fast forward from that all the way to 1917. 1917. The famous British general Allenby. Man, he had a decisive victory over the Turks in this valley. And because of that victory, the ball started rolling in a big way. It was that victory that caused the Ottoman Turks to sign over what was then called Palestine to the British. Because of a, ba- a battle in Megiddo, signed over to the British, it became what was called the British Mandate. And it was given to them in 1918. If you know your history, what's interesting is that almost prophetically a year before that, in 1917... A man by the name of Lord Balfour, the British Secretary of State, wrote what was called the Balfour Declaration supporting the establishment of a Jewish national homeland in Palestine. Balfour Declaration first, and then General Allenby's decisive victory, and the Turks sign over Palestine to the British, and God was preparing the way for Israel to be reborn. But it came after a battle in the Valley of Megiddo. If you look back over history, you find from 1468 B.C. all the way up to 1970 A.D., just in that period of time, over 200 bloody battles were fought at Megiddo, in the hill country of Megiddo, Har Megiddo. And Napoleon famously said, all the armies of the world could maneuver their forces in this vast plain. 
Whether Napoleon knew it or not, they will. Joel chapter 3 verse 9 says, Proclaim this among the nations. Prepare a war. Rouse the mighty men. Let all the soldiers draw near. Let them come up. Beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. Let the weak say, I'm a mighty man. All of this is, it's godly sarcasm. The Lord says, hasten and come, all you surrounding nations, and gather yourselves there. Bring down, O Lord, your mighty ones. And He will. This is talked about in the second psalm. Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. That's a literal prophecy of Har-Megeddo, of the battle of Armageddon. Now, we can look at Psalm 2 and apply it to the attitude of the nations of the earth toward God, but it is literally fulfilled in this battle. David writes in Psalm 2, verse 4, He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. I've said before, it's a laugh of incredulity. Like, really? Like, seriously? You're going to gather all your forces to try and take me down? Are you kidding me? And then He will speak to them in His anger and terrify them in His fury, saying, But as for me, I have installed my King upon Zion, my holy mountain, and the King of kings will come to Megiddo. One other thing about Megiddo that I think is really interesting. Nazareth, the boyhood home of Jesus, sits on a ridge 1,296 feet above Megiddo. That is to say, Jesus grew up in a village overlooking Megiddo. Isn't that interesting? The very valley where He would come make that final stand against all the nations of the world. Verse 17. Well, then the seventh angel poured out his bowl upon the air. Note that, upon the air. What is Satan called? Ephesians 2.2 Prince of the power of the air. So here comes the final bowl judgment. The final bowl poured out upon the air and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne saying, It is done. Bowl number seven is the wrath is expended. The full wrath of God extended. We'll see the description of it in just a second here. But that phrase is a powerful phrase. It is done. God speaks from the throne of heaven, out of the sanctuary, or perhaps the voice of Christ Himself, although Christ is on the way now, and the big, it is done. It is finished. The final bowl, it's done. The word done there is from the root word in the Greek, ginomai. Ginomai. Literally, it means it has come to pass. Everything that was said would happen has now happened. It has come to pass. The bowls are completely emptied. The wrath is exhausted. It's done. Done, God says. The wrath, you could say, is satisfied. What's interesting is to contrast this with what Jesus said on the cross. In John 19.30, Jesus didn't say, Ginomai, or, or, or the literal Greek there, Gagonin. Jesus said, Tetelestai. We've been over this before. So you've got two different words. One, Gagonin, Ginomai. It is done! 
But on the cross 2,000 years ago, to Talus die, it is finished. And I believe that's absolutely intentional because to Talus die means the work is complete. The work is complete. The difference between these two phrases, it is finished on the cross, it is done there at Megiddo. The difference is, it is done means the wrath is exhausted. It is finished means the work is completed. It is done means judgment is now emptied out. The seven bowls are empty. But to Talestai, it is finished means grace is filled up. Grace is full. Philippians 1.6 I am confident of this very thing that he who began a good work in you will perfect it. Teleos. Tetelestai comes from the same. To perfect, to fill up, to satisfy until the day of Christ Jesus. The difference here is while all was done that needed to be done to fulfill the grace of God, to offer the grace of God full and free to the world, That's different than this because here the wrath of God on this hardened, rebellious, blasphemous world is spent. It's just spent. Here it is. This final bowl. Verse 18. There were flashes of lightning and sounds or cracklings and peals of thunder. And there was a great earthquake such as there had not been since man came to be upon the earth, so great an earthquake, so mighty. Bigger than any that have come before. There was a previous earthquake at the end of the trumpet judgments. You may recall a global earthquake, and this one's worse. This is also global, planetary, the entire planet shaking. But that one doesn't hold a candle to this one. This is worse by far. And verse 19 says, And the great city was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell. Babylon the great was remembered before God to give her the cup of the wine of his fierce wrath. And every island fled away, and the mountains were not found. So it parallels the seventh trumpet. If you look at the seventh trumpet judgment and the seventh bowl judgment, they are similar. But just take the seventh trumpet judgment and crank it up a billion times. The same, but far, far worse. It's going to basically be so long San Juan's because every island fled away. You know. Farewell, Fidalgo. (laughs) It's also going to be uh, bye-bye Olympic mountain range. And we look out on clear days and the Olympics are huge, beautiful. We can look to the Cascades, Mount Rainier, Mount Baker, big, majestic, gone. Completely gone. The phrase, every island fled away, fled away is literally vanished. So they will disappear. They're going to sink into the sea. The mountains completely gone and flat earthers will have a lot to talk about in that day. But the Bible is clear in numerous places that massive geographical changes, topographical changes will take place not only in Jerusalem and Israel, but across the face of the entire world. And it's all in preparation for the rejuvenation for the kingdom age that will follow. The context tells us exactly which city the great city is in verse 19. It is not Jerusalem. It is Babylon. Babylon the great, remember before God, split into three parts. 
And what we'll see, not tonight, but in future studies, Revelation 17 and Revelation 18 describe in detail the taking down of Babylon. Both the religio-pagan and the commercial profiteering side of Babylon, both are taken out and we get a chapter devoted to each one as God wipes out this ancient city scourge. Verse 21. And huge hailstones, about 100 pounds each, came down from heaven upon men. Okay, I don't know if you read about this, about three weeks ago, March 25th, there was a huge hailstorm in Texas. You hear about this thing? Hail was pounding the state, and especially in a region right between McKinney and Frisco in North Texas. The largest hailstones, and we're talking about smashing car windows and, and destroying trees and plant life. I mean, it was, it was a pretty rough storm. The biggest hailstones in that storm were 2.75 inches in diameter. Size of a baseball. Now, if you're outside and it begins hailing the size of a baseball, get inside. That's huge. What we're talking about here, that's 2.75 inches. We're talking here about 100-pound rock-hard medicine balls coming down out of the sky. About that big. Solid and absolutely devastating. (laughs) No wonder the islands vanish. It's going to take some big hail to take out the Olympic mountain range. It's going to happen. The hailstone's massive. And again, worldwide, the planet is just getting leveled by these massive hailstones. Why? Well, there's a reason for this, a divine reason. Verse 21 ends, And men blasphemed God because of the plague of the hail, because its plague was extremely severe. Take a moment now, turn all the way back in your Bibles to Leviticus chapter 24. Leviticus 24. And as you're turning there, I'll just ask you the question, see if you know off the top of your mind, what was the punishment for blasphemy in Torah law? Stoning. Stoning. And the judgments of God end with a massive global stoning. Watch this. Leviticus chapter 24, verse 11. The son of an Israelite woman blasphemed the name and cursed. So they brought him to Moses. Now his mother's name was Shalomit, the daughter of Debri of the tribe of Dan. Blasphemed. I, I told you the, the definition for the word blasphemy in the Greek. This is the Hebrew definition for blasphemy. It's Yakob, and it literally means to bore a hole. <laughs> to bore a hole. It can be used for that, so you could even be in carpentry work and you could be boring a hole and you would Yakob as you did that. But it also means, in terms of blasphemy, to profane a name with the intent of permanent damage. So again, it's calling that which is good evil. It's demeaning the name of God such that you damage, trying to at least, you seek to damage the reputation of a pure, good, holy, righteous father. So from the Hebrew mindset, it is doing, trying to do permanent damage. Well, this boy was out there blaspheming the name and cursing. And notice in verse 11, he's doing both. 
So you could say he's taking God's name in vain, cursing, but he's also blaspheming. So there's intent here of being destructive toward the name of God. So they put him in custody, verse 12, so that the command of the Lord might be made clear to them. And then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Bring the one who is cursed outside the camp. Let all who heard him lay their hands on his head. And then let all the congregation stone him. Really? That's... Really? This boy? Just... See, I read this when I was a kid after learning that taking God's name in vain was blasphemy. And I took it to my dad. Dad! If if I say, oh my... And take God's name in vain, will you stone me? He said, depends on how bad my day was at work. (laughs) But I thought, this is extreme. Why would God do this? And this is the son of an Israelite woman. Well, for one thing, let's be clear. We don't know how old this kid was. Son of an Israelite woman could have been in his 40s. Could have been a fully grown man. And he's blaspheming God. And we've got to understand with blasphemy, there is evil intent against God. There is a heart hardened against God. We're not talking about someone who flies off the handle and blurts out God's name in vain and didn't mean to, but kind of did and feels bad about it. And now they're taken out and getting stoned to death for it. That's not the story here. This is someone who has stood, who is standing opposed to who God is and what God is about. We don't even know the argument, but my guess is that the argument, the fight between this guy and the person in the camp of Israel probably was about the nature of God. Who God is. How God is to be worshipped. But whatever the case, because the word blasphemy is used, we're talking about a heart that is rock hard. A heart that is unrepentant. A heart that has wholesale rejected God. God would not call for punishment on someone like this. Would not call for stoning on someone if there was even the remotest chance of repentance. There is not. So I'm telling you, the punishment fits the crime. Verse 15, God says, You shall speak to the sons of Israel, saying, If anyone curses his God, then he will bear his sin. Now that's cursing. See, here's the grace. If you curse God, you're going to bear your sin. You will have sinned, and you're going to have to bear that. But, he goes on and says, moreover, the one who blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. All the congregation shall certainly stone him, the alien as well as the native, when he blasphemes the name, shall be put to death. Hey, cursing is one thing, and it's bad enough, and I'm not approving or saying it's okay to toss around God's name as if it was any other name. It's not. It's not okay. I do believe it's sin to take the name of the Lord in vain. However, it's not blasphemy. It's a different thing. Blasphemy goes beyond this. And blasphemy is, I remind you, unforgivable. Because again, Jesus said whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. Why? Because the heart is rock hard and unrepentant. The heart wouldn't receive forgiveness of sin even if it's offered. Blasphemy. And Jesus said it's because they were saying he had an unclean spirit. These Jewish leaders were calling down Jesus as evil when he was purest good. The name of God is synonymous with his nature. 
And so to blaspheme, as we see at the end of Revelation 16, even after all this, they are still, as the hailstones are pounding, as the stoning, if you will, is going on, they're still blaspheming God. They're still decrying His name. Demeaning, profaning, calling the greatest good evil, the punishment will fit the crime. Hailstones for blasphemy. Stoning for calling God that which He is not. Calling Him evil. Blasphemy is the language of hell. And I'm fully convinced that if we could crack open the lid of the lake of fire a hundred billion eons into eternity, the first thing we would hear is blasphemy. Being belched out of the pit of hell because blasphemy comes from a hard, rock-hard heart. It comes from one who will not repent. You've got to recognize that. When we see it, when we understand that, and we see this stoning take place in Israel, we realize, what do you do with a rabid dog? You can't heal it. There's no medicine. There's nothing you can do. So what are you going to keep old Yeller pent up outside and just let him bark and growl and snarl and eventually bite someone and give them rabies? Are you going to take him down? Travis had to take the gun. I saw. How many cried at old Yeller? (laughs) Anyway, horrible movie. Have I told you that story that I had that great idea that I'm going to teach my children about pets and dogs and how wonderful it is to have a dog, but there's also loss in life. So I showed them old Yeller. (laughs) Hannah was five. Corey was seven. Bad parenting. I I own that one to this day. Do you remember when you showed us old Yeller Dad? Yes, I remember when I messed you up with old... Anyway, anyway, I'm off, I'm off. So, what do you do with a rabid dog? you got to take it out. Or rabies will spread. So God takes out the blasphemer in Israel, and here at the end, hailstones. Now I want to say one final thing here before we finish. I've talked to many Christians over the years who have been worried because they took God's name in vain or because they got angry with God. I have actually had the question asked more times than I can remember. I walked away from the Lord. How do I know He forgives me? I I, I cursed God. How do I know How do I know that I haven't blasphemed Him and now I've committed the unforgivable sin, therefore I can't be forgiven, therefore what's, what's the point? Have I committed the unforgivable sin of blasphemy? Let me explain something to you. First off, 1 Corinthians 12, 3 says, Therefore I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God says Jesus is accursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Let me ask you here tonight, if you've wondered, have I gone too far? Have I blasphemed God? Do I have the unforgivable sin in my life? Let me ask you tonight, can you say Jesus is Lord? You can't say that unless His Spirit is with you. I'm not talking about blurting out the phrase, Jesus is Lord. Okay, I said it. No, no, no. Do you mean it? Jesus is my Lord. You cannot claim Him as Lord and have blasphemy in your life. So if tonight you say Jesus is Lord, guess what? You've never committed the unforgivable sin. You may have gotten mad at God. You may have been foolish toward God. You may have said things you wish you'd never said. You may have blurted out His name in anger. But you have not committed blasphemy of the Holy Spirit if you can still say Jesus is Lord. 
And listen, this is so important. What is the opposite of blasphemy? It's worship. It's praise. The opposite of railing against God is rejoicing in God. The opposite of defiant profanity is devoted praise of our Lord Jesus. Can you worship God? Tonight, can you, can, yes, I can worship God. Can you worship Him? When people come back, and, and again, it happens all the time. When people come back into fellowship, because of life and whatever's been going on and wandering, and, and you know, and we, we also have this other funny side note here. We have this sense that I haven't been in church in three years, therefore I'm lost. No, you just haven't been in church for three years. <laughs> Welcome home. Abraham never went to church. There wasn't a church. Where did Abraham go? What was his house of worship? I mean, he just followed the Lord. Yeah, but I haven't been following the Lord. I understand that, but are you here? Can you worship Him? Can you in your prayer closet, can you in the hidden place in your home, can you in your car car cry out to Him? Can you offer praise to God and worship to God? It's the opposite of blasphemy. Don't worry. I'm not trying to just wash away because remember what God said to Israel, hey, if you've cursed God, you're going to bear your sin. It's a heavy weight to bear when we speak against God or when we act against God or when we rebel against God. Man, that's a heavy weight to bear and we feel that. And there is guilt and there is shame that comes naturally with that. I'm talking about far worse. I'm talking about the seared conscience of the world in the last day when Armageddon is breaking loose, when the hailstones are coming down, when it's all coming on planet Earth and people are going, blasphemy, blasphemy, blasphemy. You're not there. If you can call Jesus your Lord and if you can worship Him, even if it's a worship that's coming from a sorrowful place of repentance, man, praise God. And by the way, If you're at all worried about where you stand with God, worship. Praise Him. Because worship and praise has a way of changing us, whereas blasphemy hardens that stone-cold heart, worship warms and softens a believer's heart. Whereas blasphemy crushes a person, and it does, spirit, soul, and body, blasphemy like hailstones flattens a person's life. But worship builds up spirit and soul and body. Worship strengthens. It gives us faith, restores faith and hope and love. Even if that faith, hope and love is weakened through the week, you get before the Lord, you begin to worship with the fellowship and you find faith growing again. And hope restored and and love surrounding you. Blasphemy consumes and empties a person whereas Worship fills up and satisfies. Rachel, why don't you come on up and go ahead and start playing. I want to take a moment and worship together. We're going to sing this song, but before we do, I want to read a psalm. And Russ, you want to go ahead and hit the lights in the back. And let's take a moment and give our hearts opportunity to worship. Maybe you felt like, I was this close to blasphemy this week. You probably weren't. You may have been this close to cursing. You may have been foolish before the Lord. You may have sinned against God in a bad attitude. But you know what? Tonight, 
I invite you in your heart to say Jesus is Lord. Say Jesus is Lord again to Him. And if you've never accepted or received Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, do it tonight. How do I do that? Just walk forward while we're singing. And I'll be up here and Les will be up here. One of us will pray with you. You can receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior right now. But speak, Jesus, you are my Lord. And and worship Him. And let worship wash over the cursing and the anger and the stuff in life. Just let the worship wash you and strengthen you. And listen to this. Psalm 63. Oh God, You are my God. I shall seek You earnestly. My soul thirsts for You. My flesh yearns for You. In a dry and weary land where there is no water. Thus I have seen You in the sanctuary to see Your power and Your glory because Your loving kindness is better than life. My lips will praise You. So I will bless You as long as I live. I will lift up my hands in Your name. My soul is satisfied as with marrow and fatness. You know, the good part of the steak. And my mouth offers praises with joyful lips. When I remember you on my bed, I meditate on you in the night watches. Oh, for you have been my help. And in the shadow of your wings, I sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. Those who seek my life to destroy it will go into the depths of the earth. They will be delivered over to the power of the sword. They will be a prey for foxes. But the king will rejoice in God. Everyone who swears by him will glory. For the mouths of those who speak lies will be stopped. And again, O God, you are my God. I shall seek you earnestly. Lord Jesus, we praise you tonight. We offer you hearts of worship. We declare you, and I invite you to do this right now in your heart to the Lord. We declare you, Jesus Christ, as Lord. And we worship tonight, praying that you'll wash away all rebellion and all that's profane in us and everything that's impure, unclean, (laughs) frog-like, Lord, purify us, for we worship you in Jesus' name. Amen. Won't you come? If you have any need, come. Let's stand together and worship the Lord.